You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual It's Tuesday, February 9th. Voters in New Hampshire are going to the polls today, and they get to choose on the Democratic side between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, who is expected to win New Hampshire, where he's been polling ahead of Hillary forever. We'll see what happens as the race moves to larger, more conservative states that don't abut Vermont. But Bernie is expected to do very well today in New Hampshire. Also today in New Hampshire, Republicans will be going to the polls and choosing between all these noxious shitbags who are running for the Republican nomination. I don't know if you caught the GOP debate last week, but it was pretty mortifying. Hilariously mortifying, mortifyingly hilarious from the opening moments when Ben Carson got lost on his way onto the stage. If you haven't seen that video, you're going to want to jump online and watch Ben Carson just sort of mill around, lost, not knowing where to go, apparently they didn't leave that trail of breadcrumbs that usually leads him straight to the podium. That was an inauspicious start to what was a cacophonous shit show throughout. Chris Christie beat the fuck out of Marco Rubio for being a rubot, they're calling him now. Jeb Bush beat the fuck out of Donald Trump on the issue of eminent domain. Donald Trump gave as good as he got by pointing out that the Keystone Pipeline, which Republicans can't think about without playing with their tits and stroking their dicks, will not be able to be constructed without employing eminent domain to seize land from salt-of-the-earth farmers in flyover country. I got called away to dinner shortly before the debate ended, so I missed and didn't tweet about and was scolded for not tweeting about the moment when all six or seven of these men, Carly Fiorina did not make the cutoff of their GOP debate, all six, seven of these men began to talk about abortion. You'll never guess what they had to say. They bragged about, as governors, Bush and Christie, defunding Planned Parenthood. And of course, when governors take money away from Planned Parenthood, they aren't defunding abortion because public monies, government money, cannot be spent on abortion services. What they're defunding are cancer screenings, STI checks, pap smears, birth control, they're actually defunding all of the things that make women less likely to require abortions and more likely to not die of fucking cancer. That's what Christie and Jeb bragged about doing, imperiling the lives of American women in their states and driving up the abortion rate in their states. That's how they prove their anti-abortion bona fides. And then you had Rubio. Rubio on the ropes again trying to defend his previous comments where he said that he opposed abortion even in cases of rape and incest because, as Rubio said, he would rather lose an election than be wrong on the issue of life. And he said this after saying that he recognizes the right of a woman, quote, to choose what to do with her body, which is a real right. Up until that moment that her choice involves terminating a pregnancy, even the pregnancy of a rapist, that Marco Rubio believes that he should be able to post National Guards at the entrance to her vagina to prevent her from terminating. Also, incidentally, Chris Christie reiterated Carly Fiorina's big lie about Planned Parenthood that they are selling and profiting from baby parts. Christie said, 
of Clinton, she believes that organization, Planned Parenthood, which engages in the systematic murder of children in the womb in order to maximize the value of their body parts for sale on the open market, is an acceptable position. Chris Christie said that. Chris Christie, the moderate Republican governor of a blue state, we're supposed to regard Chris Christie as a moderate, Chris Christie repeated that lie, which is the lie that inspired a man to take an automatic weapon to a Planned Parenthood office in Colorado and start firing and killing people. This is not just a proven lie, but a lie that has proven to be very, very dangerous. And you have Chris Christie mouthing it at the Republican debate. All of these questions, of course, put to the GOP candidates, even the ones put to the Democratic candidates when we get around to questioning them about abortion, except as their premise that this is a debate about whether or not we are going to have abortions in this country. Abortions, shall we have them or shall we not have them? Shall they be legal and a thing that happens or illegal and a thing that does not happen? When in actual reality, the question is abortions. What kind shall we have? Because legal or illegal, we are going to have them. Legal, they're safe. Women will not die as a result of having those abortions or be sterilized as a result of having those abortions. Children will not lose their mothers as a result of dangerous and illegal and often lethal abortions. Remember, most women getting abortions already have children, are already parents. And I would love to see that question put to these candidates with the citations from Romania, which outlawed abortions, Nicaragua, which has outlawed abortions, states that outlaw abortions still have abortions. It's just that women die. And maybe they're down with that. Maybe they're pro-women who attempt to get an abortion, suffering and dying as a result. They should have to go on the record, though. They should have to own that. They should have to say that. They should have to confront that reality. What they pine for so desperately, what they say they're going to bring to us, illegal abortion in this country, return us to illegal abortion, will kill women. Maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe they don't fucking care about women. Maybe we don't have to read the tea leaves too closely to see that they don't fucking care about women because nothing demonstrates more clearly that someone doesn't care about women than supporting the defunding of Planned Parenthood. Or doing the defunding of Planned Parenthood as Bush and Christie bragged about at the GOP debate. As a direct result of Bush and Christie's defunding of Planned Parenthoods in Florida, in New Jersey, women may have already died, but women certainly will die as a result of no access to cancer screenings, no access to STI testings, no access to birth control. Finally... Some folks were commenting that this was six men or seven men up on stage talking about abortion without any women present. And that was true. But the only woman who could have been present if she had qualified for the debate, but she did not, was Carly Fiorina, who would not have said anything differently. It may have said things that were as or more offensive than the things these six or seven men had to say. This anti-abortion, anti-Planned Parenthood jihad being waged by the GOP and their candidates. It is an attack on women. But that's how you win the GOP nomination. Attack women, attack gays and lesbians, attack Muslims, attack trans people, attack African Americans, belate the police. That's how you win over there. Speaking of winning, whoever wins in New Hampshire on the Dem side, probably going to be Bernie. 
But if it's Hillary or Bernie, let's remember that as the primary season rolls on, Dems, my fellow Dems, that we're going to wind up voting for either Hillary or Bernie in the general election. Whichever one wins the nomination, I'm voting for. And I want all of you to pledge. Whoever you support more passionately, whoever you feel more strongly about, pledge with me that you will support the Democratic nominee. And as we discuss Hillary v. Bernie, as we debate this passionately, let's remember that in the end, we will be supporting one or the other against whichever one of these GOP shitbags, those assholes over there on the right, ultimately nominate. All right, coming up today on The Lovecast, we have Maduri, sex educator, here on the show to take a couple questions with me and the responses to what we're now calling Drippy Gate at the end of the show. Also, oh right, Valentine's Day this week. Fuck first, ladies and gentlemen. Hashtag fuck first. You know my advice. You also know how I feel about Valentine's Day, February 14th, bane of my existence. Now your calls. Hey, Dan Savage. I'm a 49-year-old gay man who's always had a thing for muscle, as in I would rather jack off watching random guys flex their biceps on YouTube, and a big shout-out here to random guys flexing on YouTube, than just about any sexual encounter that didn't include a guy flexing for me. I have been mostly single because of this, as most sex doesn't seem to interest me, and it hasn't seemed reasonable to partner with someone for sex I'm not into or to try to lure someone into a relationship just to be my living posing doll. In the 80s and 90s, I had good luck finding hustlers who would flex for me pretty affordably and even seemed pretty stoked that they wouldn't have to suck me off for uh, me to feel like I got my money's worth. Uh, Then the internet came along, and it's just been so much easier, cheaper, safer, and with a seemingly endless parade of guys who just want to show the world how awesome they look from the safety of their side of the camera. As nice as it is, I'd love to be feeling someone up while he flexes in front of my appreciative eyes. I've only talked about my fetish in company that felt safe and accepting, and tonight I and a good friend of mine who recently broke up with his girlfriend of three years were hanging out. Uh, which we do on occasion. A little about him, he's 20 years younger than I am, good-looking, tall and lean, and just started going back to the gym. He knows about my fetish, and the subject came up while talking about relationships. During the conversation, he asked if it would be weird for him to flex for me while I took care of business. He said he wouldn't be looking for anything in return, that he was sort of excited about the idea of giving someone else what they needed without any expectation from him. Before he left, I told him if he ever wanted to initiate something and that he should not feel obligated to, even having had the conversation, that I would find it extremely hot to be flirted with while he flexed his muscles for me. He just left, and I'm giddy. We asked each other if we'd ever had a casual friend with benefits, and neither of us have had. Um, He is interested in exploring this and seems game. I have some questions. I am more than a little self-conscious thinking about jerking off in front of a friend in ways that I'm not self-conscious in front of the non-judging computer or even the hustlers I gave $20 to. I love that my friend is interested in letting me explore this with him. I have been wanting to explore this with a willing partner for most of my life. I am okay that he's not looking for a relationship. And while some affection would be gravy, I'm glad there won't be an expectation of sex beyond me getting off. I would love to hear your opinion about how to overcome my feeling a little creepy jerking off while staring lustfully at my friend. Anything else I should be aware of in case he decides to follow through and show me how his workouts are benefiting 
him, um, please let me know. I feel like a damn teenager over here. What a great problem to have. I know, right? I, I picked your question to sort of lead off today's show because sometimes it's nice just to get a question that's not an intractable predicament where there's no really good outcome. There's a great outcome here. Potentially. Well, that's, that's really nice to hear. Yeah, that's good. So just to, just to remind me, because I'm operating on three hours of sleep here, you're into muscle okay. guys. You like to jerk off while they flex. For you, that's enough. That's sex for you. Well, I have always wanted more, but really, I haven't been even having that live in mm -hmm. person lately. So, And along comes uh, a, a straight friend, 20 years younger, who's muscled up or is muscling up, and he's offered to do that <laughs> for you. And you feel conflicted about that because... Because um, in times past when I have actually had a person who would do this for me, they were someone that I was giving money to do it for. They were a person I didn't have to run into again. Exactly. Really. Um, and that goes to the heart of why people pay folks for sex often. It's not yeah, for the sex. Yeah, it's to I'm, go away after. So you don't have to see them. Wow. Right? Okay. That's one of those yeah. things people say yeah. about you know why you hire a sex worker. It's not so much often for the sex. A lot of people hire sex workers who could get sex elsewhere. What they want to pay for is the convenience and for that person for it to be understood that there's no relationship here and you're going to go away after and we'll treat each other decently, but that's it. Business transaction. Wow, a little illumination. Okay, good. The issue here is your friend's going to be present in your life post you jerking off about him, at him, and you're going to feel awkward. Oh, I think there's an easy fix to, you know, part of the problem. Part of the problem is, is you looking at him looking at you while you're jerking off. You know, I mean, my, in my fantasies, the guy gets off on me getting off on them, and that is hot. I don't know what this guy's going to do because he's straight. Um, yeah, like, but he's just, he could have a little touch of the bi. He could be a kinsey. He does have a, he's, he's admitted that he has a touch of the bi. Okay, but, so um, listening to your call, so. listening to your call, thinking, okay, what's in it for him? For a book I once wrote called uh, Skipping Towards Gamora, I hired a male sex worker who I described as an armoire covered in turkey skin. He was just this giant muscle guy. And oh. he jacked <laughs> off. He jacked off. I didn't wow. do anything. I didn't even get undressed. But he, like, did this, like, muscle worship scene with me, which sounds like what's you're into. Because I didn't know what to yep. tell him I wanted because he's totally not my type at all. I was just hiring a sex worker to hire a sex worker because I'd never done it before. Huh. And so okay. I said, do what you do. And he did what he does, which was he kind of dragged my right. face around his muscles for a while. And then he jacked <laughs> off. And he was straight. And I afterwards, I was, because wow. I'm an inquisitive guy, afterwards I was like, why was that hot for you? What was in it for you? You got off, I didn't. I'm the gay guy. You're the straight guy. What happened? Yeah. How, how come there's a puddle of your cum on my hotel room floor and not mine? And, wow. and we had an interesting conversation about how he really got off, as so many of the big, muscly straight guys at the gym seem to. They got off on being seen as an object, being desired and desirable, and particularly being desired by and desirable to gay guys. And that was what wow. turned him on. So there was something in it for him, even though he's almost 98.9% hetero in all of his interests, expression, desire, relationship histories, all of it. This is something I fantasized for years and for some reason or other have not run into. So, well, I can't say I haven't run into it because clearly some of the hustlers I have hired, and this is well over 10 years ago, like I, I, I just haven't. It seems like the hustler scene where I live has 
diminished, like police came down on it and it's just changed. So I just sort of, and about that time the internet was coming up and I was like, Oh, this is way safer, way cooler. Mm -hmm. So it's great that there's all these, I've kind of been dealing with. There's all these hot, hopefully 18 years old and up guys who are doing all these pose videos. I'm sure you have a very active Instagram account because there's all these guys who are documenting their progress constantly and showing off. I don't Instagram. Oh, you should get on Instagram. So much. There's so much on YouTube and I, <laughs> I like the moving, I like the moving image and it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be pornographic for me. It's, and that's awesome. Um, that's awesome that the world know, has risen. Kind of... Tech came along to, I think specifically Al Gore invented the internet for you and to meet your specific <laughs> needs and I you should send so. him a box of chocolates once a month. That all that said, <laughs> like, I think you should go for it. See if it's awkward, you know, with your friend. Sure. Except that there's something in it for him. It's not just you selfishly taking, particularly if he's admitted he's already got a touch of the pie. I bet if you forced, otherwise he wouldn't have asked, right? right. And I bet if you yeah. forced him to really admit it, you know, if you dragged it out of him, he would say this. The idea of this turns him on too. And you should just yeah. let that be. Whether you want to drag it out of him or not, I think I, I don't think you need to drag it out of him. I think if he's offering, mm-hmm. he's not like the Mother yeah. Teresa yeah. of Lats. If he's offering, there's something in it for him. <laughs> But all that said, and all yeah. that aside, like Hustlers and YouTube and your muscly friend, you, you say you could never really have a relationship because you don't want to con somebody who isn't uh, a muscle guy into being in a relationship with you just for the intimacy and companionship. And you don't want to, uh, I, I don't know, just be with somebody because he's an object, he's a muscle guy. You have a, another option, you realize, besides yeah. those two little tiny rivulets of the dating pool. That doesn't make any sense. Pools don't have rivulets, but you know what I mean. Sure, sure. And your option is another guy like you. Another guy mm. who is mm. a, a muscle worship bottom, where you two can right. be partners, be intimate together, whether that's sexual or not, and go have these guy together. Exactly, go have these together every once in a while on some Whoa. great big piece of muscle meat that you guys can worship and groove on together. Wow, that's amazing. That's exciting. You're that's, not the only one. You're not the only one like well, you. Well, I know that. I figured that out. And just think <laughs> if you had, if you met somebody like you that you enjoyed spending time with, enjoyed going to the movies with, enjoyed making dinner with, and having dinner with, and hanging out with, and yeah. even cuddling with, that you didn't have to hide your primary sexual interest because he shared it, and you guys could indulge that together. That's a big deal. That would yeah. be amazing. It's like two guys who hmm. are, you know, crazy fisting tops who enjoy every once in a while. <laughs> a fisting bottom together and that's right, central right. to their sexual expression. And it's a shared passion, even though they can't indulge each other directly. Dan, this is exactly why I called you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe this didn't occur to you in the past. You had to know you weren't the only well, muscle perv it, it, drooling it, it, all over your YouTube channel. I, I guess it's occurred to me. It's just because it's not the, it's not the thing I'm looking for. It's, it really isn't, something i've actively sought out it's just something like i thought well you know that's a possibility among infinite possibilities of of things that could happen um but yeah it's never it's never been something i thought oh maybe i'll look for someone like that and maybe we'll double our chances (laughs) and you can have a companionate marriage yeah potentially that's really intimate and wonderful and also have this Thing that you both enjoy doing together where you're kind of being sexual with each other, but bank shot through the abs and right. pecs and delts and lats of the dude you're both licking. Very interesting. I like it. Good luck. Send pictures. 
<laughs> Very good. I, I will. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I have a question about post-breakup etiquette. Um, I'm 27, and I was with my boyfriend for two and a half years. It was super serious. He's a painter, and I'm a musician. And so basically, you know, I don't know, during the relationship, I was making a lot more money than he was, and he lived with me not paying rent, and I often would lend him money, and that was totally cool with me because he was making this effort to sort of, I mean, he was coming out to Europe to live with me. So it sort of made sense, you know, I wasn't, I didn't like, you know, charge him rent or anything like that. I just paid for stuff. And he broke up with me a couple of months ago over the phone, and it was awful, and it really shredded me. But since then, I've sort of, you know, gotten over it. And even since then, he's really regretted it and wanted to get back together and sort of it's been pretty messy because I basically had to break back up with him because I didn't want to get back together. And my question is, he owes me a really significant amount of money, like, I don't know, probably getting to be around $2,000. And my question is like, you know, he's like all wounded and wanting to get back together. And I'm the one who's now kind of actively breaking his heart by not wanting to get back together with somebody who broke my heart first. And, you know, the sort of, I just want to know, like, is it the kind of thing, like, I don't know if people normally, if there's an etiquette about this kind of thing. You know, I have money and he doesn't. So it seems, it seems like low to ask for it. And at the same time, you know, I picked up like a huge amount of slack and just in the breakup process, like I had to pay to, you know, send him his stuff and make sure that everything got to him. And, and there's just kind of this outstanding money that I just, um, forked out. And, and he even to this day sort of accuses me for not having looked out for him financially more, which is galling considering, um, that I would float him money all the time. So yeah, I guess I was just wondering, is there like, is it tacky for me to even think about it? Um, or is it, and I should just swallow it and just say, okay, well, at the end of a relationship, people owe each other money and that's just life. Or is it the kind of thing that I can bring up with him later and say, hey, you know, you owe me a bunch of money. Can we deal with that? Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. The tech savvy at risk youth informed me that you called back to let us know that he would always promise you to pay this money back that you were floating him and lending him. You could remind him of that if you wanted to, but in cases like this, the best course of action I've always found is to ask yourself how much you would pay to be rid of this person. And does it roughly come to the amount this person owes you? And if so, you write that off. In relationships, friendships, with family members, you don't loan people money that you expect to ever see again. You have to go into those sorts of agreements with the expectation that repayment is probably unlikely. Consider how old this guy is and that he's the age that he is and in a place where he is where he's having to rely on his girlfriend to help pay his living expenses. Probably not in a place where he can pay you that money back now. But for your own peace of mind, for your own self-respect, you can go to him and say, you owe me this money. I think you should pay me back. And then you can wait there by the phone for the rest of your life for that check to come, that will never come. But in answer to your question, you say, is it tacky to think about it? It's not tacky to think about it. It's not at all tacky. But here's what you're going to think about when you think about it. 
You're going to mull it over. You're going to turn it over in your head. You're going to remember the mistake you made with this guy because you thought about it. And then you're going to remember not to make that mistake with other guys in the future. Because you've thought about it. Because you didn't make the mistake of not thinking about it. You thought about it. And now you know better. You know not to date guys who hit you up for money that they don't and will never pay back. Hey, Dan. Um, I had a quick question about uh, sex toy etiquette. So I just started being a new guy. Um, he's great so far. It's been about a week. And it's we've discovered that we share a couple of kinks. The sex is great already. Um, and we, you know, and through discussion, kind of found out that we were both into, you know, a little bit of bondage play, things, uh, you know, things like that. And so it goes without saying that we both already have some gear, I guess you could say, um, but plug dildos, things like that. Um, and I was curious as to etiquette of reusing sex toys with a different partner. Obviously, cleanliness is an issue. So for dildos, vibrators, butt plugs, things of that nature, those are fairly easy to clean. But with stuff like tie downs and, you know, things that you can't just toss in the dishwasher, is is there a, an etiquette around that? Is there, should it be something discussed beforehand of like, oh, these were somebody else's or, you know, I, I don't know. To me, there's more of a yuck factor with the tie-downs and things that aren't easily as washable. Um, so I was kind of curious to get your input about it. Um, is it common for people to reuse sex toys with multiple partners? What is the etiquette uh, surrounding that? And, you know, furthermore, he he is into uh, pegging and... You know, so do we go get a new dildo together? Do we use one that he already has that he's been pegged with before? I am kind of new to it, and so I'm just curious as to what the etiquette is surrounding multiple partner sex toy use. Dicks, mouths, pussies, assholes. These are all things that we use and reuse, share with new partners without anyone demanding that we discard them because we use them with previous partners. And yet when it comes to Dildos, butt plugs, flashlights, the kind that can be cleaned and sterilized, silicone, non-porous, quality ones, the kinds you can't toss in the dishwasher. People demand or seem to expect that these things will be discarded after use, that they're a one-off, one-time, one-partner toy, unlike your dick, which is for everybody. And you're going to be responsible about that dick. You're going to clean it between uses, even if you're using it on the same partner. But when you shift to a new partner, you're going to bring along that same dick. But it's going to be clean. And yet we don't do that or we don't think people should do that or some people think it's rude if people do that. If you're talking about really high quality, expensive silicone or stainless steel dildo, which to me just seems nuts. But I may be an outlier on this. There are lots of people out there, maybe even majority of the people out there, think a penetration toy used on one partner can't be carried into a relationship with a subsequent partner, that that must be sent to the dildo landfill, wherever that is, the island of misplaced dildos. But even people who think you have to discard a dildo, I can't imagine very many of them would expect folks to discard expensive bondage gear. I think the further you get away from genitals and orify with your sex toys, the fewer and fewer people would believe that those sex toys must be discarded. So yeah, perhaps a dildo, perhaps a flashlight would have to be discarded when you get a new partner. But tie points, but restraints, 
harnesses, things that bind people, but things that don't go in and out of people. I've never really heard about anybody tossing all of that shit between partners, in part because all of that shit is super fucking expensive. It's also not an insertion toy. And it's also, for the most part, all of those things can be cleaned, just like dildos. Quality ones can be cleaned, but whatever. So no, I don't think you need to throw away the tie points. I don't think you need to throw away the bondage gear when you start to use it on a new partner. And I don't think, myself personally, that from partner to partner, you need to throw away or replace dildo harnesses, pegging toys, dildos, butt plugs, whatever, so long as it can be effectively cleaned. There's good information online, particularly at the Smitten Kitten website, about the sex toys that can and can't be cleaned. A big group of progressive sex toy merchants got together and created a website called badvibes.org where you can learn all about sex toys, what's in them, lube, what's in them, safe sex toys, how to clean your sex toys, and which sex toys really you probably will want to discard. Not between partners, but period, the end. Shouldn't have bought it. Kind of dangerous. The kind of chemicals in it, phylates, other things. Can have chemicals in it. We don't even know what chemicals could be in it because they're from mystery factories somewhere that no one really knows about. So go to badvibes.org for more information about your sex toys and how to clean them and whether to discard them. But bondage, restraints, ropes, don't throw those things away. Those don't belong in landfills. They belong in playrooms and toy boxes. Hi. I'm having a situation, and I'm not sure how to deal with it. Currently, I'm working in a family restaurant because the family works there. I'm going to like the family, and I love them, and I, you know, I'm part of their family now. And I know that one of the servers there, who is the son of the owner, his girlfriend is cheating on him. I know one example because I was there when it happened. And I'm not sure what to do because I like the family. I love the family. And I know that she's cheating on him. I know that she cheated on him because she messaged me over Facebook and was like, can you keep this a secret for me? And I would, I would have, it's none of my business. I wouldn't, wouldn't have in the first place, but now she's working there and I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know if I should tell the family because I, I, I respect them. I, I need a job. I love that job there. And I'm, I don't know what to do. Um, I don't know whether I should message her and give her an ultimatum of, you know, if you don't tell them I will, or if it's none of my business. Your first impulse is a good one to stay the fuck out of it, but you're his friend and she knows that you know, and you need to ask yourself where your loyalty lies and to whom you owe your loyalty chiefly and primarily. And it sounds like it's this guy that you're friends with and his family by extension, but this guy, and if I were in your shoes, what I would ask myself is when the truth comes out, when he finds out that she was cheating on him. What are the odds that he's going to find out that I knew about it and when I was asked to keep my mouth shut to participate in deceiving him, I aided this girl, his cheating girlfriend, who is not my friend or is not as good a friend to me as he is or as longstanding a friendship. We don't have as longstanding a friendship as he and I do. And it's just an impossible position for you to be in to try to anticipate how that might go down and how to protect your own skin and your relationship with this guy. And I think if I were in your shoes, and that's the only way I can work through a problem like this, if I were in your shoes, I would probably, I would be so torn and I would want to know more. 
I would want to know from this girl whether this was a one-off because sometimes people cheat. Often early in relationships, you don't mention the ages of the folks involved here, but sounds like everybody's pretty young. You sound like you're pretty young. It sounds like you're talking about your peers who are of similar ages. And is she new to this relationship and she made a mistake and cheated on him once and kind of did it in a public way and wants to stuff that down the memory hole because the relationship's so good and she actually feels appropriately guilty about it and is doing the thing that I think sometimes people who've cheated can and should do, which is to eat the guilt and keep their mouths shut, to protect their partners from the truth about them so long as they've decided to walk in the light for the rest of their lives and never do that again. Is that the case here? Or is she a serial cheater who is pulling the wool over his eyes and abusing him and potentially putting him in some sort of physical danger, physical risk of contracting an STI by continuing to cheat on him and you're complicit now in not just a one-off, deeply regretted, never going to happen again, wish you didn't know about it cheat, but many, 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 many cheats that involve some degree of risk for him as they persist, as she continues to cheat on him. That frames it differently. You know, it's not once a cheater, always a cheater. Oh my God, somebody cheated. Execute them. That's not my stance because almost everybody cheats at some point in a long-term relationship. That's not my stance because sometimes people screw up. Sometimes people cheat. Sometimes good and loving people cheat on someone that they actually love and the relationship could fall apart if the truth comes out and it might be better for all in many of these instances for the truth never to come out and for the relationship not to fall apart. So just running and telling because somebody cheated and that's all you need to know, you could be the instrument by which this relationship that could have, should have, would have survived dies and is destroyed just need more information here before I can tell you what to do. So here's my conditional advice. If it was a one-off, if when you talk to this girl, she's full of regret and there's nothing that she wants to do again and she stared into the abyss and she realized everything she put at risk and she feels bad, keep her counsel. Keep your fucking mouth shut. Stay the fuck out of it. If you know her to be a lying, cheating whore, as they used to say in the north side of Chicago where I grew up, you might want to go tell him. Your first loyalty plays with him. You might want to go let your friend know that he's being deceived by his girlfriend about who she is and how she really feels about him. And that will, of course, come at a price for you. At the very least, the likely price is it's going to screw up your relationship with this woman. If you continue to work together, that could be really tense for you. There's also the outside possibility that he may blow up at her, they may patch it up, and then they'll both hate you together, which is often the position people who run and tell find themselves in. They're not the hero, they're the heel. And then there's the coward's way out. There's the, you think he needs to know, it's not a one-off, deeply regretted, never going to happen again thing, but a regular occurrence. It's not a cheat. It wasn't a slip up. It's an affair or a series of affairs and he needs to know, but you don't want to even take the small risk of being the heel. Then there's Gmail. Then there's Hotmail. Then there's the anonymous poison pen letter letting him know what he may need to know and keeping your fingerprints off of it. Because if she is a serial cheater, if she is indiscreet, indiscreet enough to have fucked around on her boyfriend in front of you and other people at this other restaurant where you all used to work, you're not the only one who knows. So if somebody goes to him anonymously and clues him in, 
the odds that that could be definitively traced back to you are pretty slim. But that, of course, is the coward's way out. Hello. I am a nearly 40-year-old man, and I'm calling about my penis. Uh, for the you know vast majority of my life, my penis has been kind of straight as an arrow. And when I have an erection, it protrudes straight out from my body, no curvatures, no bending to one side or the other. But in the last couple of months, I've noticed that um, it's begun to curve downward when I have an erection. And I mean, it's not like, you know, a gonzo nose or anything, but it's a noticeable curve. And I was just wondering if, what's up with that. I am married to a woman. We've been together for six years and married for two. Um, is it possible that you know, my penis is somehow contorting to kind of match the contours of her vagina or just a symptom of getting older or there's something I should be concerned about. Uh, there's no pain or anything involved. It's just something new. So if you have any insight, that would be great. Get thee to a urologist. Go. What you're describing, I don't think is induced by the contours of your wife's vagina. I think what you're describing sounds a lot like, and I'm going to mispronounce this as I mispronounce so many things, Peyronie's disease. It is a buildup of scar tissue or plaque under the skin in the penis that can cause a penis that used to go perfectly straight or used to go in one direction. Sometimes penises that actually have a little natural curve or bend to them to start bending or curving in different directions. And the buildup can be gradual and what's not painful now can become painful later. There aren't a lot of great treatment options for Peyronie's disease, but there are some. And the sooner there's an intervention, if indeed it is Peyronie's disease, the likelier you are to be aided and benefited and rescued and helped by it. So call your doc, get an appointment with your urologist and get your dick checked out. Hi, Dan. In February 2014, I went through a really horrible breakup. Um, my husband started physically and emotionally abusing me, and it was really, really terrifying. Um, my family intervened. Uh, they helped me pack my stuff and moved me back to Michigan from North Carolina, where I moved to be with him. I attempted to work on my marriage long distance, but my husband continued to verbally abuse me, and I think I ultimately made the right decision to protect myself and stay away from him. Um, several months later, I was working on the divorce pro process, and I met a man who I started dating very, very casually. I really wasn't in an emotional state to get emotionally close to anyone, so like I said, I was pretty distant, he, and he was as well. It was just considered to be a very casual relationship. I just didn't feel that like he was entitled to all the information related to that breakup, though he did know that it was rough. Um, I didn't ever tell him that I was married. I'm young-ish and was raised Catholic and felt really ashamed of the fact that I got married young and divorced kind of quickly and just didn't feel like he was entitled to that information. Months later, I'm divorced. I'm doing a job that I really love. I'm surrounded by people that I really care about, and I am still with this man. And he's still in the dark about the fact that I was ever married and that I was divorced. I think I did a really good job of keeping that under wraps. Um, I'm really not sure how I've maintained this admission for as long as I have, but I have. He's been really kind and supportive about what he does know about that breakup, that there was domestic violence and that I needed to be basically removed by my family from the situation. 
and he's been really kind and supportive and I love this man and we want to we've talked a lot about our future neither of us want to get married for other reasons and he has just been a real a really truly good man to me um but I don't know how I can actually create a loving and lasting relationship with this person when he doesn't have all the information. I've done it for the last however long, but I don't know how to maintain it any longer. What can I do? You go to this kind and supportive man that you've been dating for, what, almost two years? And you tell him something he already knows, that shortly before you two met, you were in an abusive relationship that your family had to rally together to help you flee. And that when you began to date him, it was pretty casual and you didn't expect that you would continue to date him. You thought maybe this would be a rebound thing or it would be a short term thing. And so you didn't tell him everything because it didn't feel right. You didn't feel that if it was a casual dating thing, that he was entitled to every last detail of your previous abusive relationship and that by the time you realized it wasn't a casual thing and you actually had very serious feelings for him, you became self-conscious about what you had not yet disclosed to him and began to kick the can down the road. After you roll it out like that with that preamble, he's going to be expecting something major. He's going to be expecting you to disclose to him that you are the lost Palin daughter. He will be relieved to find out that all it is is that you were married to that man that you were in an abusive relationship with, that you had to divorce him in part to get away from him. What's something else that you know of this guy besides kind and supportive? Not particularly interested in marriage. You guys have already had this conversation. You don't want to get married again. The again was silent on your part. And he doesn't want to get married ever. So this isn't someone who's coming into this relationship with you with romantic idealized notions of where your relationship could be going or what a marriage is. You're the Catholic one, not him on this subject. So lay it out there. And if he freaks out or reacts like an asshole, then he isn't the kind and supportive person that you thought he was. Which is not to say that if he has an issue with how long it took you to tell him about this, that if he feels hurt, that he is therefore default an asshole. He may feel a little bruised. He may feel a little wronged. Not in that he had a right to know this sooner, but he may feel like, why didn't you trust me? Was I not kind and supportive and decent enough for you to trust me with this sooner? And you can apologize for that and then take ownership of it by saying, this isn't about you or the person I knew you to be. This was just about my embarrassment, my shame, my Catholicism, and my insecurities. And I withheld it to a point where then disclosing it became a bigger deal than it ever really needed to be. And that's not about you and I apologize for that. And that's only if he has a feeling about how long it took you to tell him this. And then you just have to reassure him that it's not about him. There's no slam or critique or criticism of him in how long it took you to tell him about this. It's just you and your insecurities. And you're telling him about it now because you love him and trust him. And know him to be kind and supportive and you don't want to have this secret anymore. You never really wanted to have the secret at all. The only reason you had this secret was because you bumbled into it. Because at first this relationship was casual. Now it's not. So now you're disclosing. Hey, Dan. I am a huge fan. I'm a 43-year-old straight woman married with two kids. I am calling because 
my husband and I met kind of late in life and both really wanted to have kids and kind of jumped on it. And I think both of us are very happy to be together and we are a great team and we're doing a great job. We're having fun. However, our sex life is not the hottest ever and actually it really never has been, Um, but it's been good, Uh, just not super hot. And uh, it occurred to me recently that a nice, easy way to sum it up, sum up the reason is that both of us want to be dominated. And uh, neither of us really want to dominate. (laughs) Joining me by phone from San Francisco, Midori, sexuality educator and artist, teaching and coaching all over the world. She's the founder of Rope Dojo and Fort Femme Women's Dominance Intensive. You can find out about Midori's classes and Fort Femme at fhp-inc.com. Hey, Midori, thanks for jumping on the phone. Oh, thanks for having me. I understand you have a cold. I do, I do. If I'm a little nasally, I apologize. My voice is usually even sexier. (laughs) Well, thanks for making time for us when you're not feeling well. So uh, this first caller, I get this question a lot. A lot of women write me. Uh, because they're with somebody who's submissive and they want to become better dominance or they want to grow into dominance. Uh, and that's her question, basically. How do you do that? You created Fort Femme to teach women who are interested in being sexually dominant how to like catch that groove. So what's your advice for this 43-year-old married mother of two? Uh, yes. So first, congratulations for for – you know, looking at another way to explore pleasure, right? So, yeah, it's opening, walking through a new portal and a new door and new adventures always, you know, butt-clenching and and all that sort of stuff. So first, the congratulations. Then second, throw out every stereotype. Throw it all out. Throw it all out. And uh, there are a couple of things that I advise uh, my Fortefem graduates and students which one is two things. One, what would please me now? And two, how am I holding space? Mm-hmm. So if you have in your mind, you know, the three ring circus of whips and chains and blindfolds and, and fancy outfits, no, 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 no. It's what would please me now? If what would please me now is the perfect cup of tea, well then, Ask for it. If what would please me now is having my hair brushed, if what would please me now is to have that perfect sexual touch on the clip, okay? So not what do I think should please me now. Now, keeping in mind that this is also collaborative play and fun, right? Mm -hmm. So to make it into a shared pleasure and a little thing is that selfishness in the bedroom is oftentimes a gift. And when I say selfishness, I actually mean speaking clearly what you want. Because I hear from so many partners, how do I find out what my sweetie, what she wants? And and then in the meantime, sweetie, she's like, oh, you know, I, I shouldn't impose that whole conditioning that a lot of women get, right? Mm, we talk about that a lot. 
yeah, yeah, that, you know, oh, I shouldn't ask, I shouldn't want, I should, I should, you know, take care of my, my sweetie's needs. I should not want this. But in a way, isn't she kind of doing that? Even though we're talking about how does she grow into being dominant, she mm-hmm. says that both she and her husband are more naturally submissive. They're both more aroused by submissiveness. Mm-hmm. And her question isn't, how do we, you know, pass the dominant baton back and forth? How do we mm-hmm. both grow into the dominant role? The question is, how does she herself do it? Because it sounds like, She's going to defer to his interests and desires and become the dominant sexually in the relationship. And it isn't mutual. And she is kind of deferring. She is kind of meeting his needs and not her own. Because what if the answer to what I, what do I want right now is she wants to be submissive? Well, I am hoping that my, my hope is that they would enjoy maybe taking turns, that enjoy playing, playing the it for each other. Mm-hmm. And I'd certainly encourage her partner to also ask the same question of himself. And the question for how do I find my erotic dominance is is not just for women. It applies to, to men as well. So I I do hope that I do hope that this is going to be a, a game that they take turns at. So tell us quickly about Fort Femme, which is yeah. begins with your your lecture. You have a two-hour class called The Art of Feminine Dominance, and it's a weekend-long yeah. seminar, retreat. Where is it? How much does it cost? And, and, and what is the seminar usually like? What would If people were interested in signing up, what would what would they be signing up for? Ah, okay. So Fort Femme, it is a two-and-a-half-day intensive. It's myself, nine women, three days, brain dump. And, and it's not about – it's not about – the wacky pokey bindy stuff. It's not about the, the nitty gritty of the techniques. It is about how to find her authentic power, her authentic power from the inside, from the bedroom to the boardroom. Mm-hmm. We, we work a lot on, on how to tap into, how to tap into what would please us now and how to hold space. So that's, uh, that's the weekend in a nutshell. We, it's a, small group where you get to work really deeply that way. I hold this in San Francisco and New York and I take over a beautiful vacation rental so it's like this gorgeous home environment. Mm-hmm. We even have a Saturday night field trip and the one in San Francisco comes with a gorgeous uh, erotic dinner. The one in New York, we have a field trip to Purple Passion. And um, <laughs> Yeah, and then the alumni show up for the dinners as well. It's 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 great. And, and it sounds uh, like it sounds like it lays the groundwork. You build the foundation for maybe technique stuff that comes later. This is about finding uh, your rooted, authentic, dominant sort of expression. And of your actually, design. yes, and actually, you may already have the technique. What's interesting is I have women attending that have no idea of what kink is or dominance is. And on the other hand, in the same class, I may have somebody with 20 years of play experience who is trying to tap into and recharge her power. And if you already have the skills, it amps it up and boosts it. And if skills are new to you, it gives you solid foundation. It's the heart and soul. So if she can't come to, to Forte Femme, just to quickly answer her question, how can she get more dominant? Okay. Uh, a simple thing is in, in one lovemaking time, okay, one, one shagadelic evening, instead of asking for 
what it is that you want and he already likes to provide. Hey, honey, would you, know, would you go down on me? Instead of that, tell him, honey, go down on me. So it's already something you both like to do. Just make it an order. Just make it a benevolent command. You don't have to be bitchy <laughs> about it. Uh-huh. You don't have to be bitchy about it. It's something you both already know you like to do, but just shifting the tone. And how do you let go of that part of your brain that's telling you my partner may have this mental image of a dominant woman or some sort of subplay that he's masturbated about for many years? How do you let go of you know the, the, the I don't know the anxiety of falling short of your partner's ideas of what a dominant woman should be? Oh, that's that's a tough one. That that's the work that we do, and like we take a whole week, a whole afternoon of the weekend to get rid of that. See, the thing is. Getting stuck on a media stereotype makes you a slave to media. So you're so you're really submitting to some sort of cultural ideal about what a dominant woman is and not being the dominant woman you are. Yeah. Or could be. And and to and to look at whole other models of dominant women, right? Whether in history or media or comic books or whatever it is that that genre of humanity that's represented. Um, you know, like I'm a science fiction geek, right? So there's Oh, let's see. Um, there are so many people in like, oh, Zoe and Firefly uh-huh. and uh, whatever it is, genre, to look at a whole another way of what a power femme is. Start to create your own different mental types. And is it about creating a persona or is it about unlocking something that's already within you? Oh, it is about finding that persona that's already in you. It's like role-playing games for kids, right? I mean, when we're, we're playing superheroes and supervillains, right. and we're eight. We're still eight-year-old kids, but in that moment... Some people in BDSM land don't like it when I call BDSM cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off. Oh, well, you know. I'm, but I kind of think that that's what it can be. That, you know, oh, it you... absolutely is. Okay, okay, so here's my definition of BDSM, right? Okay. It's childhood joyous play or childlike joyous play with adult sexual privilege and cool toys. Mm-hmm. That it's works for me. with fucking. Oh my God. <laughs> it totally is. And you know, if we're going to take, I mean, life is so damn serious. We have so many things we have to be serious about. Why do we have to be serious about this? I mean, there is, there is, you know, levity, levity is serious business. You know, it's yeah. in play, man. If, if we don't get to play, I mean, we, we wither as primates. Hello, Dan Savage. I am a 30-something female living in a sex-positive city on the West Coast. I have had an interest in DS relationships for a very long time, uh, dominance and submission for your listeners, um, but have not explored much of this outside of a few isolated scenes. What I fantasize about is more of a 24-7 lifestyle, and I've never really come out about this to anyone. I should say at this point that I am a submissive who does not get off on pain or humiliation. I want a gentle, loving Dom who would use his control over me to my benefit as well as his pleasure. I've been seeing a really nice, successful, good-looking guy for about six months, and I started to come out a little bit to him about this, and he seems cautiously game. I want to point him to some resources where he can learn more, 
but the sites and books I've found describe DS styles that don't appeal to me, and I don't want him to get the wrong idea. I'm not a masochist, and the whole master-sir thing seems laughably stiff and formal. Resources about daddy-doms are kind of good, but I don't identify as a little. I'm not into age play, and I don't want to be treated like a child. Although we have started to experiment in small ways, I don't think he understands how much it pleases me to submit, and if that appeals to him, I want him to really go for it. What can I point him to so he can better understand me? so that he can better understand both the possibilities and the responsibilities that come with his role if he chooses it. Also, any advice on rolling this out slowly so that if one of us does find out that we actually don't like it, we don't damage the existing relationship, which is already very fun and very sexy. Okay, this call for me was very frustrating. Talk about not speaking clearly about what you want. I know everything this woman doesn't want, after listening to this call a couple times, but I have no idea what she does want. She wants 24 mm-hmm. seven, but she doesn't have to find that in any way. She doesn't want it to be master slave. She doesn't want age play. She doesn't want to be hurt. She doesn't want BDSM. Doesn't sound like she particularly wants bondage, but she wants her partner to go for it in the absence of any specific information. That's positive. It's just all these negatives. Don't be this. Don't be that. And mm-hmm. go and go. And it just doesn't sound like she's communicating with him very clearly. And she wants to point him at some uh, outside resource where he can read all about how to do dominant submission, even 24-7 dominant submission, just the way she wants it without her having to say how she wants it. And I found this call very frustrating. I'm done venting. Your turn, Midori. How did you feel? Okay, how I felt, sweetie, 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 I know you want something that you can't put words to and you wish there were an ultimate manual out there. Sweetie, there isn't, and you have to make one. You have to use your words. So, you have to use your words. And, and okay, so, yeah, Dan, I'm with you. She got, she got a lot of the things that she doesn't want. Great. She can start one column on that, but she should also start a column on what exactly it, is it that is part of this, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the, the things that, okay, so I, I, part of the frustration that, that – think she's trying to voice is that in kink writing and BDSM instruction stuff, the stereotypes, oh, the stereotypes again, it's, it's the same old thing. It's a very limited imagery and it doesn't give us a lot of resources. So part of what she's trying to say is there isn't just good material out there. So she has to actively source for this. And Instead of, uh, I'm going to replace the word DS, dominance and submission, with leadership. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what kind of leadership model is she seeking? Does she want like, you know, strict martial arts teacher and student? Is she seeking a Mr. Miyagi? Is she seeking um, uh, the nice daddy to the teenage girl, you know, without getting to be a little, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of of leadership teamwork model and look outside of the stereotype, look outside of the language that kink people use. She's still attached to the the language of the kink subculture. There is a lot of fabulous examples for leadership out there and she needs to start writing it. 
Now, uh, writing it, communicating it, collecting clips and images in the positive language of these are the things I like. Right. Examples of and, what she wants, what turns her on, what kink stories has she found online, what pornography works for exactly. her. Exactly. What represents and, what she wants? Because all I have, all I'm sitting here with is a long list of what she doesn't want. But she wants him to go for it, it. And this is a real trap for people who are interested in BDSM yeah. or any sort of kink. Don't do this. Don't do that. But I want you to go for it. And then they go for it and they wind up doing two other things that you don't want. And then the person you ask to top you feels burned because they feel terrible about making you feel bad or traumatizing you. But in the absence of clear, positive instruction, not just negative, but positive instruction, you're setting your dom or your boyfriend up for failure. Also, what's the, what is the, the mission or the point, the central point of the dominance and submission? Is it sexual fulfillment? Is it about uh, both of them growing as people? Is it both of them becoming more fit or, you know, taller, shorter, fatter, thinner, um, more, you know, uh, economically viable, have more orgasms? Um, what's the objective of the DF? She says she wants, right? she wants us to point him to something that will help him better understand her and the possibilities. And I guess to just to put a cap on our advice for that question, she has to create that resource by piling together whatever porn she likes, whatever stories she likes, whatever mm-hmm. sort of descriptions mm-hmm. are out there. Maybe it's domestic discipline she's after and not BDSM 24-7 lifestyle slavery. You need to assemble that and present it to him. She might find different sources um, that's outside of kink. All right, so like Downton Abbey might be a fantastic resource <laughs> for people who seek, you know, butlership in their life. Okay? Uh-huh. It might be that, you know, G.I. Jane is a good example if she wants like a hard-ass sergeant to drive her hard. You know, it might be um, Goldilocks and the Three Bears if she wants to be the princess among big, hairy, very appetited people. And her last question, advice on rolling it out slowly. So if it doesn't work, if the kink or the submission and dominance doesn't work for them, it doesn't harm the relationship. The relationship itself isn't damaged. And that's a simple one to answer. It's just baby steps, right? Absolutely baby step. If if they decide on a rule, it has to be a rule that everybody, including him, everybody can remember. It has to be a rule that starts simple. Don't have like 57 rules. Have one rule and she needs to give her partner, the one taking on the dominant role, an opportunity to succeed, right? So baby steps, right? Totally baby steps on that. Uh, oh, and, and a little aside, like the story of O, you know that was written by the the woman who wanted to experience erotic submission as a way to give idea and literary seduction to her dominant lover. So write your own story. Write some dirty stories yeah, yourself. Yeah, totally. Yeah, what it looks like, sounds like, what what's happening. So don't look for pornography. Create some literature. Create some porn stories of your own that then you can share with your partner. But she risks exposing herself then. And I just detect like the strain of sex negativity and kink shame. And a lot of people struggle with it. I'm not like trying to beat the caller up. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people who are kinky or or not kinky, when they're talking about what they want to happen sexually because of the sex negativity in the culture, it's easier to talk about what we don't want than to own up to what we do want. And so she's mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. really good at like rattling off the things that don't work for her. But never once in that long call did she mention even one thing that did work for her. Because that's harder to say. It's harder to do. And I would also, I would also like to, to hear her list her 
assets and, and the talents and the joys that she will bring to the dominance and submission. Because submission is also, you know, it's a, it's a partnership, it's a skill, it is a responsibility. What is her part of the bargain? Midori, sexuality educator and artist, teacher and coach all over the world, founder of Rope Dojo and Forte Femme, as I know now to call it, the Women's Dominance Intensive Weekend. Go to fhp-inc.com to learn more about Midori and everything she's about and everything she's doing. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Oh, thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old straight cis female calling you from New York. Two weeks ago, I had a dinner date with a 27-year-old artist slash model that I've met online. After dinner, we smoked some weed, and it was my first time smoke, like doing drugs. It was really intense and fun experience. We didn't kiss, but after I left, he told me he really enjoyed my company and thought it was very cute and wanted to see me as soon as possible. The next day, we were making plans to meet that evening, but later on, he said he wasn't sure he could make it because he had a project due that night. I told him not to worry and that we can always reschedule. After not hearing from him for a couple of days, I wanted to check in and texted him. He responded saying he's been super busy and tired, and, the, and then he didn't really engage in the conversation further. I haven't heard from him in almost two weeks, but he called me high last night. We had a long conversation in which he was very apologetic, and he said that he has been thinking about me for a while. He said that he'd like to see me again. He also mentioned that he felt a little bit weird about the fact that he got me really high the first night that we met, also knowing that I didn't really have experience with that. During that phone call, he asked, me multiple times whether I'm attracted to him, like him, and what am I looking for in a guy. I didn't want to admit so easily that I was really attracted to him, so I just avoided the question and said I'd like to see him again. He told me to hit him up or that he will call me on Saturday to make plans for the night. It is Saturday. It's 8.30, and I haven't heard anything. It is blizzard in New York right now, so we probably wouldn't have met anyway. My question is this. Does this sound like a behavior of someone who's not that into me? And it's kind of a wishy-washy. I want to be pursued and wooed, but I don't want my pride to be in a way to talk to a guy I really like. How do I balance these things? Can he feel insecure because I didn't really admit that I was attracted to him, even though he said he is attracted to me? Should I ask him why does he keep disappearing, or is it kind of clingy and too soon? The way I know I like someone is that I'm nervous around them, and I feel a little bit intimidated by them, and that is definitely how I feel with him. What is the best strategy for this? To be honest, I'm scared to show my interest because that is part of the chase. Am I being too old-fashioned and scared to put myself out there? My friend tells me that I basically can do whatever I want, that if he actually likes me, I won't really scare him away by one extra text. Listening to your call, I couldn't help but wonder if you would put up with this guy's bullshit for two fucking minutes. If he weren't a model, if he weren't hot, would you stand for this kind of treatment? A, would you feel intimidated around him and nervous around him. Maybe not, but you also wouldn't put up with this bullshit. Don't put up with this bullshit. That's my advice for you. Don't put up with this bullshit and stop overthinking this. Yes, I agree with your friend sending a text or two. If that panics a guy and he runs screaming, you don't want to be with that guy. You can't be with someone for the short term or the long term, for a weekend or an evening or a lifetime where you have to think and weigh every second all of your actions and how you're going to behave and how you're going to express yourself and how you're going to communicate your wants and needs to that person lest you induce the opposite reaction than the one you hope for. Oh my God, what a way to live. Put it out there. Hey, you're hot. 
I'd love to hang out sometime, but I don't want to be dicked around like this. Don't call me only when you're high. Don't booty call me because I'm not booty on call. But if you want to hang out, if you want to get to know each other better, if you want to maybe fuck model boy, give me a call and we can hang out and maybe fuck. And if that panics him, if he runs screaming, good fucking riddance. Find a guy who can hear what you have to say about what you want and what your expectations are and what your needs are and react positively to that input. Don't be one of those girls who thinks guys are these unbroken horses that you have to whisper to in some secret fucking code before you can ride them. They're not that complicated. And any guy who treats you as if he is that complicated, as if you sent the text at the wrong time, you put a foot wrong, you said the wrong thing, and therefore he bolted, is just manipulating you, is playing you. Don't be played. Circling back to that text, send the text. What's the worst thing that could happen? You don't hear from him ever again. What's happening right now? You're not hearing from him. The worst thing that could possibly happen is the thing that is happening. So send the text and who knows, maybe you'll fucking hear from him. Hey Dan, tech savvy at rescue. I'm a uh, 26 year old gay guy. I'm actually not calling about myself right now. I've been asked to help plan one of my best friend's bachelor parties and where we're going, it's a super rowdy place. And the group of guys is mostly straight and me being one of the groom's oldest friends, his fiance kind of important appointed me to be his warden for the trip, make sure he doesn't get too out of control or slip up, so to speak. And I don't have a problem with this and neither does my friend, but the group we're going with might, um, a little background. There's about 20 of us and half of them are married guys, uh, who are basically pretty psych uh, psyched to get away for a week. Um, and go bananas, you know, on strippers and titties and whatnot. But my buddies already asked me to make sure that they don't get any, like, call-in strippers or hire any sex workers. But this group's notorious for doing that. And I'm a little leery to believe them, even though I've talked to them and they said that they're not going to do this, that they might just try to do it as a surprise. So my question is this. If they do decide not to respect his request, what can I do to kind of defuse the situation? I don't want to be the trip's buzzkill, but I know my friend and I know his fiance really well, and neither of them would be very pleased if this happened. So I want my friend to have a good time, relax, get drunk and enjoy himself. And while I don't think it would be hard for him to politely decline, a group of really drunk and rowdy guys can be pretty relentless and peer pressure can be a bitch. So any advice you have on something that I could do or say if this situation arises would be really helpful. And I know in the end, he's, uh, he's an adult. He can make his own decisions, but I want to give him an out or redirect pressure off of him if I need to. Uh, any advice you have would be great. Are you familiar with the term patsy? No. I'm just going to read you the definition. A person who is... Okay. A person who is easily taken advantage of, especially by being cheated or blamed for something. <laughs> Do not fucking go on this trip. You are being set up. There will be strippers. Uh -oh. There will be sex workers. And your presence and you being charged with being the cop, 
the person who's supposed to stop the shenanigans that are going to happen. When the shenanigans happen, you will be blamed. You are there so that your friend's fiance can be mad at you, not him. And so that he can be mad at you and not himself <laughs> for the shit that is going to go down. That's kind of what I've been afraid would happen. You are being set the fuck up. They both know, consciously or subconsciously, that in the run-up to this wedding, they can't risk being mad at each other. They need fall guys. They need patsies there to direct their anger at. And you're that patsy. Or they're setting you up to be that patsy. Don't fucking be the patsy. Don't go. You are not there to slap the boobs out of their hands. You're not there to slap dicks out of strippers' mouths. That's not why you're going. And bachelor parties are bullshit. And people shouldn't have them, especially this way. That, oh, it's marriage. We're getting getting married. It's the end of fun and sexual adventure. So one last binge. And people do stupid shit when they binge. Yep. And that's the thing is, you know, it's a large group. And there's a lot of, you know, peer pressure and everything like that that's going to be going on. So I just feel like, yeah, there has been a lot of pressure put on me for this. Do you really want to be with these 20 straight guys, the gay dude who's there on behalf of the fiance back at home to make sure no fun is had? Not really, no. (laughs) I wouldn't fucking go if I were you. If I were in your shoes, I'd be inviting myself along to the bachelorette party as one of the girls. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. But I I wouldn't get within a million miles of this Las Vegas trip, especially... If you're obligated to be the policeman, that's not, how is that going to be fun for you? First of all, and it's going to be impossible. I don't know. I've been thinking about it too. It's like, I need to keep my wits about me. I can't relax. You can't have a drink. All these straight guys are going to be mad at you at some point. (laughs) You know, that, that has to be triggering for a young gay dude to be like surrounded by 20 drunk, angry straight guys. (laughs) Absolutely. Go tell your friend, the bachelor, and his fiance that you are not the cock block. You are not the policeman. That if you go, and maybe you shouldn't go, you're not there to, to regulate or police or stop. And if he can't be trusted alone and drunk with these guys, he shouldn't go either. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Fortunately, I have refundable tickets. So <laughs> <laughs> good, good move to get refundable tickets. Good move. And I've been, think, I've been thinking about whether or not I should go. So definitely a conversation I need to have with my are you, friend. Are you, close friends with the, are you close friends with the bride? Um, well, kind of. I've known her almost as long as I've known him, but we're just not as close. Okay, so here's what's going to happen if you yeah. go. And if you're not mm-hmm. the patsy, and you're going to be the patsy. But <laughs> if shit goes down, if you can't stop shit from going down, then you're going to be put in a position of having to lie to her. Mm-hmm. And then she's going to find out you're lying and that you covered for him. Yeah. And then she's going to be mad at you, not him. Back, we're back yeah. to Patsy land. That's why you're there. Don't do it. Don't go. <laughs> if she wants someone there to police what goes down, she should go. Yeah. No, you're right. I will end up being the Patsy. That's a great term. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Don't be the Patsy, Patsy. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dan. You're welcome. Good luck. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm the tech savvy at rescues. I have an international love question. I'm a 28-year-old American living in Barcelona. I've been here for about two years, 
I met my partner here, and we've been together for a little over a year. He's from here in Catalonia, and he's Catalan. Now, my question has to do with the politics of language. Let me try and explain, and explain quickly and clearly. Between myself and my partner, we speak English, because when we met, I had just started learning Spanish, and he speaks fluent English. He's been speaking English since he was seven, and he's now 36. Now, I'm proud to say my Spanish is pretty much fluent, but the issue is there are two languages here in Catalonia. There's Spanish and there's Catalan. Growing up in Barcelona means you are bilingual. You learn both Spanish and Catalan in school. My partner speaks Spanish and Catalan, along with English, but on a day-to-day -day basis and with his family and friends, he speaks Catalan. Now, my partner and I have gotten into the cycle of disagreements because it's hard for me not to be offended when we're out together, and sometimes, but not always, he speaks in Catalan. I don't speak Catalan, so it means I'm automatically excluded from the conversation, and he knows this. I started taking Catalan classes a few months ago, but language is something that takes time, and I'm learning slowly. In the meantime, I've asked him to please make an effort to speak Spanish so that I can participate, but sometimes he gets offended by my asking. And for some reason, this mostly just happens with him. In my group of friends, who are almost all Catalan also, we have no problem switching to speaking in Spanish. Catalan is a very important and special language, and this is really key because it's the native language here in Catalonia, and during the dictatorship, Franco banned people from speaking Catalan. Because of this strong history and the current and historical movement of Catalonia wanting independence from Spain, I want to be extremely supportive of Catalan language and culture. Part of the reason I live here is because I think Catalan language and culture is incredibly beautiful and unique. But having to sit for an hour or more without being part of a conversation that your partner is having, especially for someone who, like me, is a writer, a journalist, and communication is important, feels kind of bad, feels bad. So I need your help. What do I do? Do I just get up and leave when he switches to Catalan, find something else to do in the meantime? I really, really don't want to be the Catalan police. Is it unfair of me to ask him to speak in Spanish in public situations when we're together? Should I just be more patient until I can speak better in Catalan? Because I know I'll get there one day. I'm determined and excited. Am I being a typical American by expecting people to change their language to Spanish so I can be part of a conversation? This is a problem in your relationship, your boyfriend speaking Catalan, because you are making it a problem in your relationship. He speaks it with his family when you're around and you feel excluded. You're also making an effort to learn Catalan and that's wonderful and you should learn Catalan particularly if you want to be with this guy who's Catalan and to whom the Catalan language is very important, presumably also important to his family, the family that if you guys stay together forever, you're going to be part of. So rather than regarding these times when he speaks Catalan with his family as disrespectful of you and your presence and your inability to speak Catalan, you could regard it as immersion language classes. 
And rather than feel excluded, you could perk up your ears and listen and see if you can't begin to pick out some of the words in Catalan that you are learning and jump in every once in a while with a mix of Spanish and Catalan, which you often hear in Barcelona, as you begin to learn this language. And then it's not a problem anymore. And it's not your boyfriend disrespecting you. It's your boyfriend assisting you and his family assisting you through immersion language classes, impromptu and informal Along your way toward learning Catalan. And then it's not a problem anymore. I had a German boyfriend for a while who didn't speak great English while I was living in Germany. And sometimes he would be with his German friends who didn't speak great English. And we would shift back and forth sometimes. They would speak German. And I would, this was pre-iPhone, it was a long time ago, sometimes have to entertain myself at those moments by thinking thoughts. Also, at the time I was trying to learn German, by listening. So I have been in your shoes, girlfriend. And the thing not to do is not to make your boyfriend feel self-conscious about his native language and the times when he wants to use it with other speakers of his native language. To be the good, loving, supportive partner you are and to recognize that most of the time he and his friends are happy to speak in Spanish and include you. And on those rare occasions when he speaks in Catalan, rather than feeling excluded, feel assisted. Feel as if they are assisting you, again, on your journey toward learning Catalan. Immersion, language class, informal, commencing, instead of terrible boyfriend excluding me. Look at it that way. All right. This is the part of the show where we play your response calls, responses to other callers, responses to my responses to other callers and their questions. And usually I don't set this up. Usually I don't say anything. We just play it and you guys know the drill. But today, this week, we're going to set this up because we got so many calls on what the tech savvy at risk youth are calling drippy gate. The guy who wondered why after he ejaculated in his wife as she walked to the bathroom or wherever or went tap dancing, whatever it was they were doing after sex, his semen would drip out of her as opposed to staying locked inside her. And we got so many calls about this man's question, and we're going to play a bunch of them for you now. Actually, we wanted to note that we got more calls in response to this man's question and his attitude than we have gotten about any subject ever in the whole history of the Lovecast. And here is a sample platter. Of your responses. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the guy who was complaining about cum dripping everywhere from his wife's pussy in episode 484. I want to tell him that this happens to every woman and he should stop asking his wife to tighten up her pussy so his disgusting cum doesn't dribble everywhere and get over it. He just got to come in his wife's pussy. I think you missed the actual problem in the story, which is that it's not her problem, it's his. Why is he kicking her out of the bed so she can make the dripping walk to the bathroom all her own? Why isn't the cleanup process part of the loving sex that apparently he's not giving his wife at all? I feel terrible for this woman being shamed to think there's something wrong with her body because he's disgusted by the sight of his own cum coming out of her. My wife and I don't have this particular problem, as he calls it, but sex is messy. Cum gets everywhere sometimes. She helps me cum on myself. Sometimes I cum on her. Sometimes cum gets on the sheets and the pillows. We keep a stack of towels on our end table for that very purpose, and we help each other clean up as part of the lovemaking. Sounds like this guy is less interested in making love to his wife and more interested in pumping and dumping and kicking her out to clean up. There's nothing wrong with her, except other than maybe her choice in men. Vaginas aren't like Venus flytraps. There's no amount of Kegels that's going to turn your vagina into a Ziploc bag. 
dude, don't be a douche. Do the crime. Do the do the time. It happens. It happens to everybody. Just get some comrades. Don't be a douche. Dude, it's your ejaculate. Why are you blaming her and searching for reasons why her vagina could be flawed and then calling it disgusting? It came out of you. What is wrong with you? I've been doing a lot of research on cum and fertility lately, and all the books say that some men's jizz just is very watery, and it's much waterier than everyone else, and that these kinds of men would definitely see exactly what he and his wife are seeing, where it's basically impossible to even sit up without a flood. I found it aggravating the way his question was phrased. Is this a problem with my wife, or is this a problem with all women? Dude, did you ever consider that maybe the problem is with you? Maybe your cum is too runny. Or better yet, let's not call this a problem at all. Until now, a women's nether regions are supposed to be pristinely hair-free and, of course, smell like a meadow full of flowers. And now my vagina is expected to be watertight? Give me a fucking break. Just come on your wife instead of in her. The solution seems pretty simple. Uh... I don't enjoy having my husband come in me unless it's at night because it kind of droops out throughout the day. So he just comes on my tits or on my asshole or somewhere fun and sexy like that. Um, Solves the problem and plus it's sexy too. The nasty, that is nasty. He should be taking care of it. He should keep a towel closed and take care of her. Not let her walk and call it nasty after <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> I bet he lets her sleep on the wet spot after. If he doesn't want nasty, wear a condom. All right, and this is the part of the show where I usually say we're going to leave it there. Some of you, I think, may turn off the podcast at this time because I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of shit that you've heard a million times. But this week, you might want to keep listening because we have a special Valentine's Day treat for you at the end of my big end of show ramble. All right, we are going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question, a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. We can't run all the comments we get from people at the end of the show. If there's something you just got to say and you want it on the record, go to savagelovecast.com where each show has its own dedicated comment thread. It's a really lively conversation there with a great bunch of people. Hump! is coming to your town. Hump is coming to Pittsburgh, Eugene, L.A., Madison, Chicago, and other cities. Hump, of course, is my dirty film festival. Go to humptour.com for more information about when Hump is coming to hump you. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Maduri on Twitter at PlanetMaduri. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. But before you go, we have a special treat for you. The Sticky Biscuits, they're a comedy song duo based in Berlin but singing in English. And they've recorded a new song just for Valentine's Day that they shared with us and gave us permission to share with you. It is called, yes, it's called Buck First. And here it is from Sticky Biscuits. Valentine's Day had me feeling sad. It wasn't that I was single or my boyfriend was bad. 
Happily now. 